We're reading just two short verses this morning. The first is Proverbs 15.25, and the second is Proverbs 16.19. Proverbs 15.25, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. 16.19, It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Please be seated. My dear brother uh, Greg Watson, I think, is doing other duty in the back this morning, but I'm going to embarrass him if he ever listens to this. Uh, That's okay, because a little embarrassment is good for the soul. Greg is prone to making what I call uh, pithy statements. Uh, That means that his words are few and far between, but when he does speak, he says a whole lot with very few words. And I admire that because that's not the way I'm wired. I say very little with a whole lot of words. (laughs) On Wednesday morning, as we were discussing this theme of humility, Greg said something that I will never forget for the rest of my life. He said, if we are indeed following Christ, then Christianity is a race to the bottom, not to the top. Philippians 2 tells us that the one who alone deserves all glory, honor, praise, power, and dominion, humbled himself. He left the glory of heaven, and he took the form of a man, of a bondservant. And he became obedient to his Father's will to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of the infinite measure of the glory that he left behind in order to carry out that work of obedience, his humiliation was greater than any humiliation ever experienced before or since in the universe. And God says to us, have that attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are called to humble ourselves before God with the humility of Jesus Christ as the standard of measure. It's quite an assignment. If you and I are truly followers of Christ, then this side of our glorification day, our lives will be a race to the bottom, not to the top. And I'm going to ask you to keep that thought in mind as we proceed this morning. Last week, we focused on how God defines humility, how He defines pride and humility. And to briefly sum up what we saw last week regarding His definition of humility... It is submissive obedience to God that proceeds from the appropriate fear of God. That is, from knowing who God is, knowing that He, therefore, is the only source of true harm or true good. And for us who have received eternal good from His hand, as the prophet Isaiah did, our fear of God is a fear that attracts and that makes us ready to serve and obey Him as living sacrifices. This morning, we're going to look specifically at how that godly humility manifests itself in the life of the child of God, at the kind of behavior that God identifies as genuine humility. And I'll tell you right up front, there's no possible way I can exhaust that topic in one message or in several messages because when you get right down to it, every act of obedience 
that's pleasing in the sight of God comes from a heart of humility. But I hope this morning to draw your attention to some of the most foundational ways that we are called to demonstrate humility Godward and manward. And those are the two directions in which humility manifests itself. If you examine the Scriptures in both Testaments in an effort to understand God's litmus test for whether a person is indeed humble, you'll find that He makes that determination in two realms. First, the realm of our relationship with Him, Godward. The second is, of course, in our relationships with other human beings. That's manward humility. Those two categories uh, should be no surprise to us because those are the same two realms in which God measures love in us. Uh, He calls His people first to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves as an outworking of that love that that we have for Him. And what we do in that second realm, manward, is absolutely determined by what's true in the first realm. Godward determines manward. In 1 John 4, verses 19 and 20, in verse 19, John says, we love because He first loved us. Now, at first glance, we might think that that simply refers to our love in our responsive love toward God. But in the very next verse, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God, uh, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. See, the attitude and the actions that we manifest in our relationships with men always reflect the attitude of our heart toward God. And that that very same principle applies to the godly attribute of humility. If you have ever had a glimpse of the holiness and the majesty and the perfection and the sovereign power of God, humility is your only reasonable response. And if that is the attitude of your heart toward God, then you will be humble and not prideful in your dealings with your fellow servants of God. Let's talk about those two realms. First, Godward humility. One of the most revolutionary aspects of the humility to which we are called in our relationship with God is the humility to submit our reasoning to God's revelation. That includes our understanding of what is true, of what is good for us, and of how life actually works. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8, it's a familiar passage. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. And it goes on, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So it it comes with a promise. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, 
but its end is the way of death. It looks right, but it's not right. Proverbs 16, 1 and 2, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, God's the one who decrees what is actually legitimate and true. Verse 2, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. See, man is a lousy judge of his own cleanness. God's the one who measures such things. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Is that clear enough? <laughs> what does the world say? Follow your heart. God says, okay, if you want to be a fool, follow your heart. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. Proverbs 30, verses 12 and 13. There is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There's a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. These are powerful indictments. What do these verses tell us about the trustworthiness of our own reasoning, our own understanding, about the legitimacy of following our own hearts? They tell us that, that those things are not trustworthy in the least. Over and over, God declares that unless He tells us what's true, we will not know what's true. We're blind to the truth. We're blind even to our own pride that causes us to miss the truth. We have this exalted view of our own understanding that couldn't possibly be more inaccurate than it is. And that blindness demands that we very deliberately cast aside our own reasoning because that reasoning only serves to delude us. Our blindness demands that we ruthlessly replace our reasoning with God's revelation. Uh, In a great commentary on Proverbs that my brother Ron Manus put in my hands when I started this study by Raymond Ortland, it's thematic, it's the same kind of approach that we're using in this series. Ortland talks about the implications of this spiritual blindness. He says, We need to be very deliberate about this because we do not naturally see our pride. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. That's Proverbs 16, 19. Pride feels normal. We trust in our own minds. We feel innocent. We feel more sinned against than sinning. We're not alarmed by ourselves. The on-ramps to the interstate of death have no warnings, no signs, no flashing red lights. But God is telling us, and we need to pay attention. Here's another verse that sets aside all doubt. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Is that clear enough? I'm going to share with you the number one argument I've heard from Christians to justify their refusal to submit to God's clearly revealed will. I hear it often in the counseling, in the context of counseling, especially in counseling hurting couples. Here it is. You can't possibly understand what I'm going through unless you go through it yourself. 
And if you did understand, then you would know that the things you're pointing out to me from God's Word are just too much to expect of somebody in my situation. And you know what my answer is when I hear that? And I've heard it many times. My failure to understand your pain has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on what you must do. I don't have to understand your pain because Jesus understands your pain. And He's the one who's commanding you to obey. The most grievous pain, the most egregious injustice, the most horrific violation of His very soul that will ever be suffered by any human being was already suffered by Jesus Christ and He obeyed His Father to the point of death. There's a lot of godly wisdom in some of the old Negro spirituals that are part of the history of this nation. And there's one very old American slave song that gets it absolutely right on this issue. It says, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. You will never suffer at the hands of sinners more grievously than Jesus already has. But beloved, He is the one commanding you to obey today. Just as He did. Will you humble yourself before God in obedience regardless of how it makes you feel, regardless of how much sense it makes to you? Will you forgive your spouse just as Jesus has already forgiven you? Will you show love to the family member or friend or enemy who treats you with contempt because Jesus Christ loved you and laid down His life in your place? while you were still an enemy of God? Will you forbear with the person who keeps repeating the same sins against you because God forbears with you daily and covers your every sin with the blood of His own Son? If you won't, then you who are a slave of Christ are exalting yourself above your Master. It's that simple. You can call it whatever you like, but God calls it Sinful, self-exalting pride. How many Christians do you know who seem to be waiting for God to fix something so they have reason to rejoice? This is the second aspect of Godward humility I want to look at. The first was humility to submit your reasoning to God's revelation. The second is humility to live with gratitude instead of grumbling. How many Christians do you know that are waiting for God to fix something so that, so that they'll have cause to rejoice? Maybe that describes you. Some have been waiting for decades. <laughs> and while they're waiting, they're blaming their complaining spirit on God because He has not met their expectations. If your life is filled with discontent instead of thankfulness, with grumbling instead of rejoicing, God tells you very clearly what your real problem is. It's no mystery. You're waiting for God to do what He's already done. The child of God whose joy cannot be taken away from Him is the one who humbles himself to confess that even if God never healed one of His diseases or illnesses, never fixed one of His strained relationships, never gave Him another penny, never delivered Him from any kind of harm that the world throws His way, He has already been blessed beyond all He could ever need or want. And that blessing has been guaranteed to Him for all eternity. 
Beloved, we're not waiting for God to bless us. He already has. We have every cause to praise Him all day, every day, for what He has already given to us that that nobody and nothing can take away from us. And if you can't figure out what that is, you're not trying very hard because He's made it quite evident. One of the most blessed and God-honoring expressions of genuine godly humility is simple gratitude. If you spend any time in any day pondering what God has given to you in Christ in light of what you actually deserve from His hand, then you cannot help but be filled not merely with contentment, that's a stretch for some Christians, but with gratitude, thanksgiving, rejoicing. You can't help be filled with those things if you're actually paying attention to what God has already done. Why do we, why do we squander our lives waiting for God to do something, some work of grace and blessing when He has blessed us so richly that we can't even comprehend the magnitude of that blessing? God says to us, Philippians 4 verses 4 and 5, Rejoice in the Lord always. Not later. Always. Again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 and 18, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. You have trouble memorizing scripture? Memorize 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. It's, it's real hard. Rejoice always. Got it? See, you already memorized. Rejoice always. Those are commands. And because so much of our experience in this cursed world seems to argue against the idea that we have cause to rejoice, obeying those commands requires humility. You want Christianity to be practical? (laughs) There is nothing that will change your life, your experience of God, your relationships with men more than a thankful heart. Nothing. All right, that's just, just a couple of foundational aspects or expressions of Godward humility. We could spend a week talking about other ones, but those are some of the foundational ones. That same kind of bird's eye view approach and look at manward humility. First, the humility to love the lowly. In the passage that we read at the beginning, Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. Now when you look at that, it might, at the parallelism there, the, there are a couple things that jump out. One is God is the active agent here. He's not delegating this to anyone. The second is the contrast between the proud and the widow. Now you might think that's a little odd. Like, isn't there any such thing as a proud widow? Well, When this proverb was written, being a widow meant that you lost your means of income, which was your husband. You were at the mercy of your extended family, and if they didn't come through and treat you mercifully, you were destitute. Read the story sometime of Naomi and Ruth in the book of Ruth. You'll get a good idea what it was like to be a widow in those times. The reason Proverbs 15.25 contrast the proud with the widow is because being a widow puts you on the bottom rung 
of the ladder of financial wherewithal and cultural respect. It made you an outcast, and it's really hard to be proud when you're an outcast. And that verse declares that God gets directly involved in abasing, bringing low the proud and in exalting the lowly. Throughout Scripture, God is the advocate for the lowly. In Psalm 146, it says that God is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoner free, opens the eyes of the blind, raises up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, protects the strangers, supports the fatherless and the widow. And what does he do to the proud? He thwarts, he frustrates the way of the wicked. Throughout the Bible, In both testaments, God declares himself to be the advocate for the downtrodden, for the lowly, the poor, the undesirable, widows, orphans, prisoners, foreigners who have no family to fall back on, for all of those who cannot provide for themselves. Psalm 10 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt strengthen uh, their heart. Thou wilt incline thine ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. Psalm 140, verse 12 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. I could go on and on. There are many passages in the law, in Exodus to Deuteronomy, many of them, in which God commanded Israel to show compassion and mercy and kindness and generosity to the lowly. And he made it crystal clear that if they didn't, (laughs) he he would be the one who would advocate for the lowly and he would judge Israel harshly for failing to be his agent in doing so. Proverbs carries the same theme. Proverbs 17.5 says, He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker, insults his maker, He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 21.13 says, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and will not be answered. And as in all that constitutes holiness, if we want to understand the love for the downtrodden to which God calls us, we need to look no further than the example of Jesus Christ. Even a cursory look at the Gospels makes it very clear that Jesus focused a great deal of his time and energy on loving and serving the less fortunate and those who were seen by the religious establishment of his day as undesirable. I looked at just one chapter of one gospel, Luke chapter 7, and here's what I found. Jesus healed the slave of a Gentile soldier. He raised the son of a widow from the dead. He was considered a friend of tax gatherers and sinners by the religious establishment, and he allowed a sinful woman to wash his feet with her tears and with her hair. That's one chapter of one gospel. The gospels and the whole Bible are filled with the accounts of God's advocacy for the downtrodden. Wherever the most despised among men were found in Jesus' day, that's where you'd find Jesus. Is that where you find us? We who are servants of the Most High God are not greater than our Master. 
how we treat the downtrodden reveals the truth about the quality of our humility before God. I think that's something we as a body need to give a lot of thought to. I don't want to come up with a list of things that we should do, but I think we need to come up with one, even if it's a short list. And you know where that that care for the lowly starts for us who are believers? It starts with the household of God. If there are any among us who are hurting, who are downcast, who are struggling financially, who are ill, who are lonely, and we're not there alongside them, then there is something wrong. Because that's what we're called to be and to do. And because Jesus is our example, we know without question that we are not only called to love the lowly, we are called to become lowly. Proverbs 16, 18 says, It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. You want to know why it's better? <laughs> Read Psalm 37 or Psalm 73. It doesn't, you, even if you're dyslexic, you can pick either of those and you'll come up with the same answer. Both of them say that the proud will prosper for a time, but it is only for a time. And when the end of that time comes, they will be swept away. And it says that those who instead humble themselves before God and find in Him their life and find in Him their only good will be exalted, they will be lifted up, and they will find fullness of pleasure in His presence forever. Which of those do you want? Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled Himself by leaving the glory of heaven and taking on humanity that he became obedient to his father to the point of death on a cross. Isaiah 53, 3, 700 years before the first incarnation of Christ, prophesying about Christ, proclaimed, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men turn their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We did not respect him. We did not honor him. The path that Jesus paved for us to walk in is this. The cross comes before the crown. As my brother Greg pointed out, Christianity, this side of glory, is a race to the bottom, not to the top. People are clawing and grasping and stomping on each other to get to the top in their careers, in their marriages, in their relationships to reach this pinnacle from which they can control people and things so that they won't have to be victimized by pain because they think that's what constitutes life. Beloved, God did not keep us here after He saved us so that we could organize our lives around the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. He left us here so that we could share in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of His eternal purposes. If we want to know what our assignment is, all we got to do is look at Jesus. Romans 15.3 says, Jesus did not please himself. Instead, he bore the reproaches, the insults that men directed toward God. And because he did, we get to be saved. Are you willing to be despised by men in order to follow Christ? Jesus was willing 
to be despised and forsaken of men in order to do the will of his Father. And so, you must also be willing. Are you willing to be falsely accused? Knowing that you will not be vindicated until you stand in the presence of God? Jesus was willing, so you must be willing also. Are you willing to suffer grievous injustice this side of heaven for the sake of humble submission to the will of God? Knowing that that injustice will not be corrected this side of glory? Jesus was willing, so you must be also. When we get right down to it, our reputation is not our concern. We have an audience of one. And our concern is for his reputation, not ours. And if it is, if that's our, if that's our concern, then whatever hit our reputation takes, we have God's promise that he will turn that into a badge of honor in his presence. In the presence of the only one whose approval matters. Humility to love the lowly, humility to become lowly, and here's one that, that I think we really need to consider. Humility to be more concerned with your own sin than with the sins of others. Whose sin bothers you the most? Your answer to that question speaks volumes about whether you are proud or humble before God. If you've had even a glimpse of the holiness of God, then you also have had a, have a powerful awareness of the gravity, the magnitude of your own violation of His character. If you understand at all the infinite nature of the debt that your sin creates toward a perfectly holy God, then any sin that, a, that another man commits against you or against any other man pales by comparison with your debt. And yet, that does include even the most grievous and heinous and hurtful sin that any person has ever committed against you. If you think there is some wrong, some sin that has been committed against you that is so evil, so terrible, that it justifies your refusal to forgive, then know this with certainty. If God took that same approach toward you for even one second, you would be condemned forever. Because, beloved, every single day, every sin that we commit creates an infinite debt between us and God. No man will ever have that debt to you. You're just a fellow slave. That's the whole point of one of the most forceful parables of Jesus Christ, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. If you're not familiar with it, spend some time looking at it carefully. Jesus doesn't mince words. This is one of the most critical aspects of godly humility. If you know what you have been forgiven by God, if you know how grievously you continue daily to put God's forbearance toward you to the test, then you cannot possibly see another man's sin as a bigger issue than your own. Here's a piercing quote from the great 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards that I came across in, in Ray Ortland's commentary under the topic humility. Ortland says that this little quote is the most significant thing he's ever read outside the Bible itself. Well, that got my attention. 
Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. Spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and an air of contempt. But pure Christian humility rather tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, but a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in this world as he is of his own heart. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers, that they are low in grace, and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. Instead, he is apt to esteem others better than himself. If there is some sin that someone you love, that someone has committed against you or against someone that you love, that is of greater consequence to you than the, the debt of your own sin to God, then brace yourself for a divine lesson in humility that you probably won't learn without a lot of pain. But when that lesson comes by God's gracious work in your life, it will be one of the most freeing things that ever happens to you. Because after that, you will never again be able to harbor resentment against a fellow slave. Freedom from unforgiveness and resentment is the birthright of every child of God. And it is a glorious freedom indeed. And it's a grievous shame that so many cast that freedom aside thinking that they are too worthy to do toward others as their Savior has done toward them. God calls us in our relationships with men to be, to have the humility to love the lowly, to have the humility to become lowly, to have the humility to be more concerned with our own sin than we are with the sin of others. I want to talk briefly about the role of humility in worship. This is another thing that really kind of got my attention as I was looking at this theme. Y'all know the story of 2 Samuel 6 of David dancing as the ark was being brought into, the, into Jerusalem. It's an amazing passage. He was there, he's wearing nothing but his loincloth and he's just dancing and rejoicing before the Lord as the ark is brought into Jerusalem. He's been waiting for this to happen for a long time. He was so absorbed with rejoicing in the Lord that he abandoned himself in worship and exaltation of God. But in the eyes of his wife, Michael, he utterly humiliated himself. And was David aware of that humiliation? No. <laughs> he was so filled with consideration of God and his goodness that he had no thought of self until Michael spoke up later. Was he mortified about it after Michael pointed it out to him? No. Because his celebration was before God in every respect, and it was good in every respect, so there was no cause for him to be embarrassed. Second Samuel 6 says, When David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king, sarcastically, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. 
He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And here's what David said to his wife. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord my God. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And then it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Michael despised David's humility before God, so God humiliated her. David humbled himself before God, and God exalted David. You know what's in the next chapter? Anybody know what's in 2 Samuel 7? The Davidic covenant. David humbled himself before God, and the very next thing that God decrees is that David will be his chosen king, and that his successor will be the one who will reign in righteousness and justice over his people. And the prophets take that theme and they say that that reign will be forever. It will be eternal. It will be perfect. And they're not talking about Solomon. And they're not talking about any other descendant of David except the one who is the preeminent son of David, and that is Jesus Christ. David humbled himself before God. And God made his name famous forever. His joyful worship of God, it came from this humble gratitude and thanksgiving that was absolutely irresistible to him. It just, it just flowed out because his thoughts were not at all about self. They were only about God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the kindness of God. Have you ever thought about what constrains your worship of God? particularly when you're together with other believers? What determines how you participate in worship? Is the volume and enthusiasm with which you sing determined by what the guy next to you might think about the quality of your voice? Or are you simply singing to the God whose amazing grace is your very life? Men, have you ever felt the nudging of the Holy Spirit to come up and share something that, that God laid on your heart, but you, you were too self-conscious to do so? When we come together to worship the living God, may we be filled together with His Spirit to overflowing with the same abandon that David demonstrated on that day. May we speak to one another, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. I want to talk about one last point, and that is God's cure for our pride. First Peter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Now, that's in a passage that's talking to elders, and then it's talking to young men. But then he comes around to this command. He says, and all of you, all of you, whether you're elders, whether you're young, whatever your station in the church is, all of you, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. You know what we call that? We call that a command. 
God's cure for pride is us, is for us to very intentionally humble ourselves under His mighty hand. You say, okay, that's the command. How can I get better at doing that if I'm not doing it well now? It's a good question. In Isaiah chapter 6, we talked about that passage last week. Think about the progression. Isaiah beheld God in all His majesty, on His throne, the train of His robe filling the temple, the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. And as a result of beholding God, Isaiah feared God. He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he got to the second half of fear, of legitimate, appropriate fear of God, when an angel, when God sent an angel to take a coal of fire from the altar, and that angel touched Isaiah's lips and said, you are cleansed, and your sin is taken away from you. See, that's the second half of godly fear, because godly fear is knowing who God is, beholding Him and knowing that He is the one who controls all harm and all good. And when you have become the recipient of His redeeming grace, you know that the good you have received from His hand is incomparable and eternal. And when Isaiah beheld God and when he feared God, then came his response of humility God said, Who shall, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's the progression. And you'll find that same pattern whether you're looking at Abraham or David or any other person in Scripture whom God brought to the point of humble obedience. That's how He gets them there. So how does all that start? What do we need to do that we're not doing? We need to behold God. Proverbs 13.13 says, He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. You know what I think is amazing about those two verses? They go from the starting point to the end point, and they skip everything in the middle. (laughs) It's all about what we do with the word of God. That's how we get on the road to humble obedience. Psalm 119, verse 38 says, Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces fear of thee. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's sort of like stand up your word, like raising up a pillar toward your servant unto fear of you. The psalmist is saying, Lord, put your word right in my face so I cannot miss it. Then I will come to rightly fear you. We cannot skip the starting point and expect to get to the humble obedience. So many Christians want to get to sanctification. They want to get to practical righteousness without going to the trouble to diligently examine the Word of God. But that's the only way that we will truly behold Him. Now God might come to you in a vision like He did to Isaiah. He hasn't done that to me yet. But you know what? He has given me so much of Himself to behold every day right here that I don't have to look around. I don't have to wonder how to see Him. I don't have to wonder how to come to know Him so that I might fear Him. He's already given me the revelation of Himself. You can't bypass the starting point to the path of life and expect to get to the goal. 
Isaiah 55 says our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And it's interesting that that's the preamble to the verse that people quote all the time that says my word, God says my word, Isaiah 55:11. My word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it. We need his transforming word because our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. We have no understanding unless he gives gives it to us, and he has. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So here's the same progression with the starting point, the seed form of humility that kicks everything off. Treasure his word in your heart. Every bit of the humility that God works into us to produce Genuine righteousness starts with that seed of humility, of submission, the willingness to look diligently into his word and to let it have its way with us, to submit our reasoning to his reasoning. If you start with that and you do it diligently and you do it all the time, make it a habit. There's no better habit. (laughs) God will see to the rest because his Holy Spirit has turned this into a living and active sword that pierces our hearts. And because even that first step of humility has to come from Him, do it prayerfully. Father, this call that You've given to us to have the the same attitude of humility in ourselves that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated uh, is uh, it, it seems daunting to us because we're just filled with pride. And we're filled with thoughts of self and we're filled with our own ideas about what constitutes blessing. Lord, we ask that you would, you would draw us into your word so that, that all that could be rearranged, <laughs> so that we could cast aside the deceptiveness of our own hearts and we could know what's true. Above all, Lord, so that we could behold you and come to fear you, and come to humbly obey you. We ask it in Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen.